Well, we're in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and we're taking a few weeks to really focus on the nature of the church. We've said in these sermons so far that the Lord has given us really three gifts to help us to thrive in this life. Do you know what those three gifts are? One is the Holy Spirit of God. Jesus said, I will send to you the Holy Spirit, and he has. The second gift he's given to us is the Bible, God's Word, God's truth for us. And then the third gift he has given to us is the church. The church is so important, not just for the proclamation of the gospel, but for each of us to thrive as we live through this life. In fact, the Bible says, and we've learned so far in our series, that the church is the body of Christ. It's the hands and feet of Christ. Now that means that most of what Jesus desires to do in Nacogdoches and much of what he desires to do in your life and in your family, he's going to do through the church. He desires to do it through his hands and feet, through his body, the church. And if we're not connected to a God-honoring, biblically ordered, healthy church, then we'll miss out on much or most of what the Lord wants us to do. The church is God's plan A for you. The church is God's answer to many of our prayers. And whether we realize it or not, one of the greatest needs that each of us has in life is that we are a part of a church, this church, that is rightly ordered, healthy, biblically faithful, and God-honoring. And so we're taking these weeks to see what the Word of God says for how we can be that kind of church. So today we come to the question, why do we preach God's Word? Why do we take such significant time? Why do we give such special emphasis to the preaching of God's Word? Have you ever thought about it? There are other ways to do church. There are many churches that don't focus on the preaching of the Word of God. It's not a centerpiece of their service or their worship. It's just not a part of their DNA. So since there are so many different ways to do church, why do we make the preaching of God's Word front and center? You know, many people believe that the preaching of God's Word just makes them feel uncomfortable. For many people, the preaching of God's Word is just unnecessary. People will suggest if we could just de-emphasize the preaching of God's Word, then we would have so much more time in our services to include other elements, to focus on other things, and perhaps our pastor would have more time to invest in different ministries in the church or the community. Some people would suggest if we could just de-emphasize preaching, then we could have shorter services, and maybe more lost people would desire to come to church if we just had shorter services. So why do we make the preaching of God's Word such an integral part and a significant part of our weekly worship? Well, there is a biblical reason. There is also a practical reason and an historical reason and a cultural reason. And I want to show you all of those today and if the Lord allows next week. But let's begin with Scripture. 2 Timothy chapter 4 and I want to begin in verse 1. 
It'll take us two weeks to fully flesh this out, but let's begin in verse 1, a little bit of verse 2. It says, I solemnly charge you before God and Christ Jesus, who is going to judge the living and the dead, and because of his appearing and his kingdom, and then verse 2, preach the word. Now, 2 Timothy is a book written by the Apostle Paul. He writes it to his protege in the ministry whose name is Timothy. He is telling Timothy how to be a pastor. And he strongly commends Timothy to preach the word. So here are some things we learn just in that verse. First, some people have been given a charge to preach the Bible. You see it right here. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus to preach the word. We often call that a calling. We'll say that somebody has been called into ministry. The Bible uses some different words. It talks about an assignment in Ephesians 4.11, an assignment to preach. Paul talks in 1 Corinthians 9 about a compulsion to preach. But whatever words we use, Timothy, young Timothy, was called to preach, and Paul reminds him that he needs to get with the task. Now, another thing we learn here about preaching is that Paul wants us to know that the one who will be preaching, the content of his message will be judged by God. Look what he says again. I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus who is going to judge the living and the dead because of his appearing and his kingdom, so preach the word. The Bible says that God will judge the preaching of the preacher. The preacher will answer to the Lord for what he communicates to the church each time he stands to preach. The Bible says this a few different ways as well. In James chapter 3, verse 1, it says that the preacher, the teacher, will fall under stricter judgment. In Hebrews 13, 17, it says that the preacher will give an account for the sermons that he preaches and the people to whom he preaches. And so preaching is a sacred trust that God has given. So he says here in verse 1, Timothy, I solemnly charge you before God in Christ Jesus to preach the word. Now you see actually in verse 2 that phrase, preach the word. Let's, let's finish verse 2. Preach the word, be ready in season and out of season, correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and teaching. Now this is the key verse to help us understand what it is a pastor should be teaching and preaching. So he gives us here at least five qualities five components of a biblically faithful sermon. Now, I'm going to go through all five. Some of them we'll talk more about tomorrow or next week. Tomorrow, if you'd like to come by, but uh, the plan is next week. Uh, let me share these five uh, components of a faithful sermon. First of all, the content of the preaching. He says at the beginning of verse 2, preach the word. You know, the preacher has no liberty to invent his own message. A preacher can't bring his own word. He can't espouse his own philosophies, viewpoints, politics, ideas. The preacher is charged simply to stand up and preach the word. Now, hopefully that seems like a no-brainer to you. Our previous pastor, Dr. Reed, faithfully preached the word of God for decades. 
I endeavor to follow in his footsteps and also preach faithfully God's word. So you might ask, what else would there be that a pastor could preach other than the word of God? If this is the church that you've attended for a while, you might scratch your head and wonder, well, if he's not going to preach God's word, what in the world would he preach? Well, I want you to know there are plenty of options. I attended an event here in Nacogdoches a few years ago, and the preacher preached a sermon from Aesop's fables. He preached from Aesop's fables, and he indicated that while this was not a Sunday morning setting, that he had previously just preached that same sermon in his church on Sunday morning. He never referenced the Bible. There was a, a tiny reference to Jesus somewhere in there, but it wasn't the central part of the sermon. He preached from Aesop's fables. There are other things we could preach on. Many preachers will stand today in a pulpit and they will say that they have a new word from the Lord. Well, they don't have a new word for the Lord, from the Lord, but they will preach what they call a new word from the Lord. There are plenty of people who will stand today and present their own personal preferences, their culture-centered worldviews. There will be people who will stand today and espouse all kind of politics from the pulpit. Listen, there are many things you can preach other than God's word. These unfaithful sermons sometimes are couched in very religious language, and it fools people. I want to give you an example. I was preparing for what I'm teaching on Wednesday nights. A few weeks ago, I was reading a book or an article. I actually don't remember which one it was. But I was reading an author, a Bible scholar, so-called, who is advocating for churches to endorse homosexuality. And so I was reading this, and I was very interested to see how this supposed Christian scholar would justify his argument against abundantly clear Bible teaching to the contrary. I mean, he seemed like a smart guy. I wanted to see just how he would explain this. So the author said that what we should do in churches, what preachers should do, is to focus on loving and honoring Jesus and not focus on some old stuffy book. Okay, that's, that's a religious way of being faithless when it comes to preaching. He said, just focus on loving Jesus. Don't focus on some old stuffy book. Well, I attempted to communicate to the author by shouting through the pages and my question was, how in the world would I know how to love and honor Jesus except for what it says in that old stuffy book? In fact, I wouldn't know anything about Jesus except for what it says in the old stuffy book. See, it doesn't matter what kind of religious language we put on it. We either preach God's word or we don't preach God's word. A preacher must preach the word, not the futile philosophies of man. So a year or so ago, Lifeway Research uh, and Ligonier Ministries partnered together to conduct a survey 
a pretty comprehensive survey of churchgoers in America. So these are people who attend church, and they sought to just see where these people were, really in reference to how much they knew of Christian doctrine, what the Bible teaches. And I'll share some of that with you. 73% of regular church attenders, these are people, most of the Sundays, they're in church. 73% did not believe that man was born with a sinful nature, and therefore his only hope was a savior. 73%, not of America, but of regular church people. Over 40% of regular church attenders thought the Bible was a collection of mythical tales. And then here's the one that'll bother you most of all. Over 50% of regular church attenders believed that there were ways to get to heaven apart from Christ. Now, how in the world could people who regularly attend church have such little knowledge of what the Word of God says, such little knowledge of the truth? I'll tell you how how that can happen. There's only one way. Those churches aren't preaching the Word. If those churches were even sort of preaching the word, those numbers would be very different. And so we see here in this verse, verse 2, the content of preaching, but we also see the consistency of preaching. It says, be ready in season and out of season. We're going to come back to that a little later in the message, and we'll spend a considerable amount of time on it next week. The next thing that we see in this verse a component of preaching is the reproof of preaching. He says to correct and rebuke. Now there's an interest today in kinder and gentler preaching. Preachers are encouraged to talk more about love and mercy, the love and mercy of God, and avoid the subjects that might be uncomfortable or the subjects that might offend people. Pastors are encouraged to be careful that they don't hurt people's feelings. Yet, Here's what Paul commanded Timothy, correct and rebuke. Now, I spent a great deal of time studying everything I could find about those two words, how they're used in other places in the Bible, in the original language, how they're used in other Greek literature in that day, how exactly they would have been understood by Timothy. And let me just sum it all up. The word correct speaks to making a compelling argument in order to convince someone. So to correct someone means to to present an argument, this and this and this equals this, in such a way that people are convinced of the truth of the argument. Now to rebuke means to issue stern warnings. So if we put those two things together, preaching includes convincing people of the truth and then warning people of the consequences of choosing a different path. Now that requires a pastor... Uh, to spend some time crafting a convincing argument from God's Word. And it takes some time at a service in order to convince people and to warn people of consequences. The next component of preaching we see here in verse 2, the encouragement of preaching. He says, with great, encourage with great patience. And we're going to come back to that one as well. The last one we see here in verse 2 is the method of preaching. He says, and teaching. In fact, I want to go back and reread the verse because this 
this sounds a little odd, I think, and it helps us to see that the way we view preaching and teaching may not be exactly right. Verse 2 says, preach the word. That's the command. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Correct rebuke and encourage with great patience and teaching. So preach with all of these things, including teaching. So that tells me that preaching and teaching, whatever they are, they're not the same thing. Teaching is a component of, of preaching. So what's the difference? Well, to preach means to proclaim. Uh, to proclaim the message of the king. To preach means to stand up and say, this is what the king says. To teach means to help people understand how that intersects with their life. And so a sermon will include proclaiming, this is what the king says, and then explaining, teaching, here's how this impacts life. Let's continue to read verses 3 and 4. For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to their own desires will multiply teachers for themselves because they have an itch to hear what they want to hear. And they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now this is very easy to understand passage. He says there will be a time and that time is now. There will be a time when people will reject Bible faithful preaching. Now we're going to come back to this a little later and again next week, but I want you to notice one thing while we're here. What will be the criteria that people will use? What is the criteria that people use today to determine if preaching is acceptable? Are they going to compare the preaching to some plumb line of truth? and measure that preaching by what we know to be the truth. Is that how they'll judge preaching? No. Look at it again. It says in verse 3, For the time will come when people will not tolerate sound doctrine, but according to what? Their own desires. So the, 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 the plumb line for preaching, if preaching is interesting, if preaching is helpful, is does it match my own desires? That's how people judge this today, and that's the problem. I was studying a couple of weeks ago for uh, what will be point three in your outline. It'll be point two next week. We won't get to it today, but I, I, I pulled up a, a website uh, from a denomination of churches uh, and I won't mention the denomination just because it's not helpful to uh, the argument here, but I pulled up the website uh, for a denomination of churches that, frankly, uh, this denomination was a faithful domination, denomination um, uh, 25 years ago. I, I wouldn't have agreed with all their theological tenets, and they wouldn't have agreed with mine, but, but they, loved, they loved the Lord, they loved the Bible, they were a faithful denomination of churches. But things have changed, greatly changed in this denomination over the last couple of decades. And so I pulled up this website and I found an article. The reason I was reading this is because I'm going to make some assertions when we get to point three and I wanted to make sure I had my facts right. So I found an article on that denomination's website called Theological Drift. And I thought, 
this is perfect. This is, I want to know what their scholars say about theological drift. So, uh, the scholar, one of their leading scholars, began by saying that there had been no theological drift in their denomination, which was just absolutely untrue. The list of things they believed 25 years ago and the list of things they believe today are not anywhere near the same list. So, theological drift. But he goes on then in the article, and this is footnotes in my manuscript as they always are if you want to follow up. But he went on to explain his statement, there has been no theological drift, and I want you to hear the explanation. He said that the words in the Bible are ancient truths, and as such, those words can't just be parroted because they offer no understanding for us, and they might actually mislead us. So what he was saying is that the Bible is great. It's just the words in the Bible we have a problem with, okay? We love the Bible. We just don't like any of the words. And then he gives an illustration to prove his point. Actually, he gave two or three illustrations. I'm giving you, believe it or not, the least preposterous of the three illustrations he gave. One was about a computer AI taking over your brain or something. And, but I'm going to give you his best illustration. So he said that words have changed their meaning. He says, there was a time when you said, if you said that my child has died, that that meant that your child had died. But today, because we can transplant organs sometimes, when we say that your child has died, we mean that you didn't transplant any of his organs to another child that might still be living. He said if the kidney of the deceased child is now in another child, then we wouldn't say your child has died because your child has not died. His kidney is still filtering blood. By saying your child has died, we're referring to the fact that you failed to do organ donation. Okay. It's impossible to even argue with a person like that. Do you understand? So when the Bible says that people will search for preaching, this is his explanation of why they haven't changed. It's just, it, it's just that the words all mean something different today. People will be searching for teaching and for preaching that fits their own desires it's their own desire. So how do we keep this nonsensical thinking from infiltrating our church and our thought processes? Listen, church, the same thing can happen here. The people in those churches that allowed that to happen were not bad people. They didn't not love Jesus. They weren't evil, wicked people, yet it still happened in their churches. How do we keep the same thing from happening here? Well, at least part of the answer is we must faithfully preach the Word. The Word, the Word of God has to be the central piece. It has to be the focus. It has to be the foundation. 
or the same thing could happen here. We must not preach according to our own desires. We must not preach to scratch itching ears. We must preach God's Word. We must preach it in season and out of season, as it says, and we must preach it all the more when it's being rejected or resisted by our culture. Here's what John Calvin said. The more determined men become to despise the teaching of Christ, the more zealous should godly ministers be to assert it, and the more strenuous their efforts should be to preserve it. We must not de-emphasize the preaching of God's Word. So why? Those, those are the verses. Why do we preach God's Word? Well, I've got four reasons that come from those verses, but because I love you, I'm only going to give you one today, and I'm going to save the other three for next week. But here's the one for today. God calls the church the pillar and the ground of the truth. The church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now we've already talked about the definition of a church in our previous sermons, and we've talked about the gathering of the church. So when the church gathers and we ask somebody to preach and we make that sermon the front centerpiece of our worship, why do we do that? Because the church is the pillar and ground of the truth. Look with me on the screens, 1 Timothy 3.15. Paul says, if I should be delayed, I have written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation or the ground of the truth. Paul gives us some qualifications for a faithful church. And then he backs that up. He explains what motivates that by saying that the church is the pillar and the ground of the truth. What does that mean? Well, the word here for ground or foundation referred to the foundation stones of a building. Or sometimes it would refer to the buttress or the bulwark that would hold up the walls of the building. Uh, the important thing here is that it was the foundation or the ground that kept the building stable and firm even in a storm or in a in an earthquake now the pillar the pillars they would of course hold up the roof and they would thrust it high so that it could be seen at a distance they they held it up they they're what gave the the building dimension so when it says that the church is the building, is the, is the pillar and the ground of the truth, what he's telling us is that the church should defend the faith and the church should proclaim the faith. We're the ones who should defend it. We, we should hold it safe. We should make sure no matter what kind of storms come, no matter what kind of calamity or changes in our culture, that we are a repository for God's word and we're holding it safe. We do not compromise. And then we should be the pillar, we should be the ones proclaiming, holding high, heralding the truth of God's Word. We are the pillar and the ground of the truth. Listen, church, God's given us, God's given us His truth. And God has given us the assignment to defend it and to proclaim it. And that is a serious and a solemn assignment 
but we are failing as a church. And maybe not First Baptist Church, but as a church in America, we're failing. When over 50% of the regular attenders of the church don't understand the basic tenets of the faith, such as Jesus is the only way to the Father, then we have failed to be the pillar in the ground of the truth. When so-called churches begin to condone behavior that is specifically forbidden in God's Word, and those churches aren't just abandoned by their members, then we have failed to be the pillar in the ground of the truth. When marriage is redefined, babies are proudly aborted, alternate lifestyles embraced, families collapsed, pornography celebrated, and the Bible snickered at, we have failed to be the pillar in the ground of the truth. Listen, church, I appreciate that there are a lot of opportunities for our church to, to do things that would be warm and fuzzy or that would be popular for us to do. I appreciate that there are all kinds of opportunities for us to honor people or to help over here or to take care of this little thing or to be a blessing over there. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do any of that. Our church do, does those things and we should continue. But God has called us to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. And that's the thing we must not ever compromise. You know, the world may demand that we change our mission according what does it say in 2 Timothy 4.3? According to their own desires. The world may demand that we scratch their itching ears, but we must refuse. We must stand strong and say that, popular or not, we're going to be the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now let me shift gears just, just a little bit here. In Jude 3, that's a book we don't preach from very often. The book of Jude, just one chapter, verse 3, says this, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was delivered to the saints once for all. Now, he says here that he intended, Jude intended to write a much friendlier letter. He says, I'm I intended to talk about the salvation and the benefits of the salvation that we all share. He said, but I couldn't write that letter because there was something more pressing and more urgent. And what was that? You must contend for the faith that was delivered once for all to the saints. Now that's a theologically rich verse and I could preach a half dozen messages on that verse and no two messages would overlap. There's much there for us to learn. But here's the thing I want us to see today. He says we must contend for the truth. That word, it's about this long in the Greek. I don't know that I can pronounce it. Epigonisasthai. Okay? You got that? Write it down. Uh, William Mount says it means to strenuously defend. Loenida says it, it means to exert intense effort in a struggle for something. The EDNT says it means that we must fight. This is what we're doing. When we gather on Sunday morning and when we 
open our Bibles and we preach and teach and we don't compromise the position of God's Word in our services, we are fighting. We are contending for the faith. And that makes all the difference. You know, when a nation finds itself in war, it reallocates its resources, it sets aside its other pursuits, it prioritizes all of its energy, it cancels all of its other programs. Listen, we are at war in our church and in our families and in our community. We're at war for the truth, for the truth. Most people in our community don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ. Most people in our community don't understand that they can't try enough, they can't turn over another leaf enough, they can't do better, they can't measure enough. It's not in them. They're guilty of sin, and they're lost, and they're hopelessly headed to hell. And their only hope is what Jesus has done for them. And Jesus loves them and cares for them. And Jesus died for them to pay the penalty for their sins. And that Jesus will forgive them and save them and adopt them and change them and bring them into his family if they'll just call upon the name of Jesus. But because churches have so compromised the preaching of God's word, nobody knows that anymore. Listen, I've got I've to conclude until next week. But let me, let me wrap it up by telling you what we should do. Uh, I know that a message like this, it seems like I'm just talking, well, I'm not talking to you. You're not the preacher every week. You are not, uh, uh, you don't have that assignment, uh, though we're all preachers of God's word. So, Pastor, why are you so passionate about this with the church? I'm going to explain more of this next week, but listen, church. The chances, just statistically, the chances that First Baptist Church will be a biblically faithful church in 25 years are pretty slim. I'm not seeing a crack in the in the vase. I'm just telling you statistically. Direction of our culture and the collapse of biblical faithfulness, the chances in 25 years, pretty small. Pretty small will be a biblically faithful congregation if the Lord tarries. So who's, who's got to keep that from happening? It won't be me. It won't be Dr. Reed. We're going to relocate between now and then. It's going to be, it's going to be you. The question is going to be, those of you who are 35 years old, what kind of church are you going to want us to have? The question is going to be, those of you who are 45, if I get hit by a bus tomorrow, what kind of church are we going to have? It's important that this is not the conviction of the pastor or of the staff. The important thing is that this is the conviction of our church. And if our church has any hope of still being a biblically faithful church in 25 years, it rests not on my fidelity with Scripture, but it rests with yours.
So what are you supposed to do? I want to give you a few things. One, two, three, I'll be quick. Number one, be a student of God's word so you can defend God's word. Are you enough of a student of God's word if somebody stood up and said, I just think we need to focus on loving Jesus and not that old stuffy book. Would you know what to say? Would you know how to respond? Listen, every single one of you needs to be an expert at God's word. And that's something that happens little by little as we study his word. Secondly, support our church being the pillar and the ground of the truth. You know, the pressure comes from the church, right? You, you decide where we put our resources and our time and our emphasis and our focus. You determine much of that. Support our church being the pillar and the ground of the truth. And then number three, finally, pray that the Lord will call more men into the preaching ministry and those men will respond. Now, I believe God is calling men and women into the ministry, and I'm, I'm planning on, in this series on the church, addressing that in a future week. But let me talk for just a moment about men being called to preach God's Word. We have a shortage. We have a dire, desperate shortage of men who are accepting the call to rise to the challenge, to stand and faithfully preach God's word. And if that doesn't turn around, if there aren't more champions for the truth in the next 10 years, then it is a hopeless battle apart from the miracle of the Lord. We need more men. I'm convinced God is calling boys and young men throughout our city, throughout our church. God is calling these men to stand and preach the gospel, to prepare, to work, to be ready to defend, and to be faithful to preach God's word. And if these young men don't respond, then we are in a hopeless situation. We don't have enough faithful preachers today. Listen, this will sound, I hope this doesn't sound in any way differently than I, I mean for it to say, but listen, th there are plenty of preachers. If, if I get hit by a truck tomorrow, listen, the, preaching at First Baptist Church of Nacogdoches would be one of the most sought-after positions in the state of Texas. There would be 3,000 pastors lined up and asked to stand here in this pulpit. There are plenty of preachers, but there are not many people who will study to show themselves approved and stand and preach the unadulterated Word of God. And the only way to solve that problem is for young men, young men in this church and other churches to respond to the call of the ministry. God is calling some of our men some of our boys, God is calling them, charging them, obligating them to preach. How has the church failed to defend the truth? There are too many intellectually lazy preachers, too many preachers interested in people-pleasing, too many preachers failing to truly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. As a church... We need to pray that God will raise up some godly young men. As important as it was in Dr. Reed's generation, 
and as important as it is in my generation, it is much more critical in the next generation that we have some men who will not compromise. Listen, as hard as it was in Dr. Reed's generation of preaching, and as difficult as it sometimes is in my generation, it will be much more difficult in the next generation. And if we don't have these young men today responding to the call, preparing themselves for the fight, then our condition is perilous. With your head bowed and eyes closed, the gospel of Jesus Christ we've declared. Jesus has died to pay the penalty for your sins if you hope in him, if you trust in him. And he will save you and change you for all eternity. And I invite you to respond to that. Even as we stand and sing in a moment, you respond. There'll be people here in the front and both services can help you do that. You just step out, take somebody by the hand and say, today I want to be in the family of God. But church, I want to ask you to pray in another way. Would you pray that our church will be a sending church, that our church will raise up young men, that our church will raise up many ministers and all kinds of ministers. All of that is important, men and women. But pray specifically that God would use our church to raise up some men who would stand and be bold proclaimers, heralders, of God's wonderful word. Father, this is for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In both services, let's stand.